Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Emily English Medley, author of the new novel, From the Moon I Watched Her. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Great. If someone hasn't heard about your new novel yet, From the Moon I Watched Her, how would you describe the novel? So, From the Moon I Watched Her is a Southern Gothic historical fiction novel that takes place in 1977 against the honky-tonk landscape of Texas. It takes place about four years after the decision of Roe v. Wade. It's an emotional coming-of-age story that is told from the first-person perspective of a little girl named Stephanie. Stephanie is the youngest daughter in the Walters family, who is trapped under a fanatic religious system that is really not serving them well. She's five years old when the novel begins, and she's 18 when the novel winds down. Do you remember the original impetus or idea that led you to write From the Moon I Watched Her? So the test that that led me to write the book was given to me sometimes during times of meditation. I had a lot of pain that was swirling around inside of me. And the idea of the story of the Walters family was given to me as a family that is upstanding in the community. They're at church every Sunday. But there are family secrets that are lurking under the church pews and in the family. And little girl goes looking for and finds these secrets. So to speak further to that question, sometimes people have asked me what inspired you to write this book. And when I thought about the word inspire, to me, it, the word means to breathe in. And I looked into the Latin word inspire, and it's to literally be blown into by some force of hope. And there was nothing ever like that for me. It was never an emotional or literary breathing in. It was more of a push factor or an exhalation. For me, just a lot of things inside of me that were needing to come out. So I wanted to tell a story that not a large audience would relate to, but that a very small niche audience would. And given what you just said, is this uh, a book that is based in your own experience? We're talking about religion and a coming-of-age story. The author is in every book. We all write what we know. Mm -hmm. I was raised in the Church of Christ, that's not a secret. What do I know about the Church of Christ? I know everything about the Church of Christ. I'm also a nurse practitioner. Before I was a nurse practitioner, I spent 10 years as a labor and delivery nurse. So I have been at thousands of intimate moments where souls were ushered into the world. That gave me a very unique perspective on some of the scenes in the book. Just having that perspective on some of the most subtle and overt discrepancies, if you will, in the culture with regards to to women and children. So to that end, some of the material in the book was something that I knew that other people may have to go and research. But, you know, where there were things in my own life, I would not describe the book as autofiction. The book is sure. definitely fiction. But when there were things in my own life that never made any sense through fiction and through dramatization, I was able to fill in those questions. And when there were gaps in my own story where the breadth was too vast for me to cross, I created characters and friends of characters who would help Stephanie to cross them. So in a way, I gave Stephanie some very heavy burdens to carry. That was purposeful, but I gave her the friends to help her do it. 
Sure. This is your debut novel. What was your writing journey that led you to writing From the Moon I Watched Her? I have always been a lover of words. When I was a little girl, my my parents spent, a, we had a lot of books and we I was read to constantly. My dad was, I would say, the person who instilled in me to be a lover of words. We used to play word games like synonym and anonym, these kinds of things when I was a little girl. But I guess when I was in high school, one time there was a story in the headlines. A guy named Clayton Williams was running for governor of Texas. And he said in a campfire, by a campfire chat one time, he said to his friends that rape is like rain, that you should just lay back and enjoy it if it's happening. And I think I was like a sophomore or junior in high school, and I was really enraged by hearing this. And so I wrote an essay called Rape is Like Rain, and I wrote it from the perspective I, I pretended that I was his mother and experiencing her, his own mother experiencing her rape, being like rain and being told to lay back and enjoy it. I showed it to my dad and he said it was too irreverent that I needed to tear it up and throw it away. And it was just one of those moments of just pervasive, explicit control over women that in the South, even my own dad, who was very progressive, is a very progressive person, just thought that the material was too irreverent for a woman to tell. That was the beginning of my journey. I, I wrote a lot of poetry in high school and through my young 20s and 30s, but I think that there is that notion that writers are not born, that they are made. And to a certain degree, I, I do believe that's true, but I also think that writing is like any art. It takes discipline and it takes practice, but there's no writer. A writer can't write if they don't have stories to write. And my journey is and has always been just about to be an observer. I've tried to practice, be really true to the craft of writing and that I don't write in order to sell. I write in order to get the story out of me. That's great. I, I remember, if I'm not mistaken, that the late writer Molly Ivins has written about and talked about that horrific anecdote that you just mentioned, the reference about rape. Anyway, I, I was wondering what what was your writing process when you were working on the novel? Did did you outline it extensively before you started writing or was it more of an organic process of seeing where the story led you? So I am actually a pretty organic writer and, a, and an organic storyteller. But so I did not outline extensively when I first began, mainly because I just didn't have the I didn't really have the knowledge to do it. I began by honestly just wishing that the story would come into existence and I would close my eyes and <laughs> I, I would focus on certain words and certain images that I wanted the the book to portray. And I basically began just by writing down garbage. I, I just wrote down garbage that even my husband, who's my dearest friend, you know, would refer to as the equivalent of like writer's open mic night. But as this, as I continued to write and as the process unfolded, I did take some extensive time to develop my book around themes. And the two themes that kind of, when I went through the book and picked out words that were repetitive through the book. The word God was mentioned like 187 times, fire like 90 times, water like 45 times. So I was able to pick out themes in my book by how many times the, the words actually occurred. And around those three themes of fire, water, God, I was able to create the tempo of the book. I also went 
by music. Some people have said that the book is a song put into a book. And the music that I would meditate on was music from the time period from which I was writing. And so I would get up and I would listen to, let's say I was going to have, I knew that a certain scene was going to unfold that day in my writing. I would listen to the music and to the song and I would truly just have it in my ears as I was writing and the music would set the beat for the characters or for that scene. That's great. So are you working on another novel now? I am. I'm actually I'm actually working on on a sequel to From the Moon I Watched Her because I I purposefully left the ending very ambiguous. I tried to be really well, I didn't try it. It came out that way. It's just true to the to the bones of literary fiction, if you will, and that the the ending isn't happy and it doesn't end very clearly. I purposefully left a lot of questions unanswered and so I'm going to answer them. That's great. Given your experience of writing your debut novel, what writing advice would you offer for those who are listening and working on their own stories and novels? So I would give two pieces of advice, and and both of them are going to sound a little bit trite, and they're going to be things that I'm sure that people have heard before, but they're things that are, are really core to what I believe. For someone who's writing their story, one of the things that I would tell them is to believe in yourself, to believe in your story. Don't believe in just any story that's inside of you. Believe in the story that is burning inside of you. Believe in the story that if you feel like you died today, which of the stories that are swirling inside of you would you be remiss if the world was not able to hear? And if you feel like you have that story, you need to tell it and you need to write it until it is out of you. But as you do it, remain true to the art of the craft of writing. So you remain true to using writing as a vehicle, not in order to sell something. So I think the second word, you know, of advice that I would say, somebody says, I've heard before, like you're naked. And when I heard that, you know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I thought, okay, I'm going to take that <laughs> advice, but I'm going to add my own twist. So in my own mind, I told myself I'm going to write like I'm naked, but that I'm sitting in a car and someone beside me at a stoplight looks over at me and catches me naked. 
So what would that mean? I'm a very private person. I was very protective of this work. I did not workshop it to friends. I did not workshop it to writers groups. I was very selective on on editors that, that were able to work on the project. I was very selective on people who I would even let glance at it, including my own husband. So did that mean I wasn't naked? No, it meant that I was naked when I wrote it emotionally. But if I'm sitting in the car and someone cat caught me in my car at a spot stoplight, they would see me in a space where I originally felt like I was maybe safe and alone. They might catch a view of my bare shoulders, my neck and my chest, but the nakedness would be caught only in glimpses. It, 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 it is not an exploitation. When you're writing like you're naked, it's not to exploit, but it's to kind of convey a knowledge that there is something that is uncovered, mysterious, probably flawed, maybe scarred, but very beautiful. So to that end, I would say like you're naked, but not like you're exploiting yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's an interesting analogy. What novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? So I am in the medical field (laughs) and I read a whole lot of medical journals all the time. The last nonfiction book that I read was, I think, The Clinician's Guide to Menopause Care. (laughs) And I read Think Like a Monk by Jay Shetty over the new year, just training, training the mind. And I always circle back to the writing of Wally Lamb. He's my favorite author. And I read Such a Fun Age way before it was on the list of things to read. That was a great one. And then I'm currently reading, what is it, Outlaw? Because it was right above me on BuzzFeeds in terms right. of a historical, yeah, anticipated historical fiction book. So I was like, I'm going to pick this book up and see what she did. Of course, she grabbed me right away. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how have you been managing in terms of the medical field and the pandemic and also writing? It's been really hard. And I'm actually taking a sub- about to take a sabbatical, I think just working through working through COVID just to get into a space of meaning making about the enormity of what we have just faced as as frontline workers. It's very painful. It's been very painful <laughs> working through COVID. And I'm gonna take a break. I'm actually yeah. gonna t- take a break as as I think a lot of people in the healthcare system are. I, I really hope that there's still talent that can be brought into the medical field after all this experience. We're hoping that the public is still there for us after this. And But uh, yeah, I'm going to take a break, actually. Yeah. Wear your mask. I'm not saying that to you. I'm saying that to the listeners. Yeah, please. Yes. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your new novel, From the Moon I Watched Her? So easy. You can go to emilyenglishmedley.com. You can Google the book just by the name and it'll pop up, you know, on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And I am encouraging everybody to go to their local indie bookstores. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Emily English Medley, author of the new novel From the Moon I Watched Her. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Emily, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Now, stay tuned as Emily English Medley reads from her novel, From the Moon I Watched Her. From the Moon I Watched Her by Emily English Medley. This book is for my precious husband, Jason, 
and the Voiceless. Part 1. Burn for a Burn. Chapter 1. Pasadena, Texas, 1977. The Christians were coming in and sitting to the right of the stage, and the devils were sneaking in from the left. The auditorium is noisily brimming with enthusiasm tonight, folks, as we wait to hear two outspoken opponents debate the question that is arguably permeating our decade. Is abortion murder? The pretty lady with black hair and a red and white scarf around her neck tapped her microphone. Testing, testing. One, two, three. Am I on? I don't think this thing is on. I looked up at her and tugged on the bottom of her striped skirt. Miss, miss, can I talk in that? She patted the sides of her hair, but it didn't move at all. I tapped her skirt again, this time harder, and thought about poking her, but I didn't. Ma'am, please? She didn't answer me. Ma'am, can I please hear my voice in that thing? She leaned down and smiled at me, and her lips shone like ham in the sun, and her teeth were big like a horse. She pushed her wide glasses up on her nose and waved to the man with the tight brown curls who held a big black camera. She bent down and patted me on the head. Run along, kiddo, okay? I'm trying to work here. You're cute, though. (laughs) She stood back up, whispered to the cameraman, and pointed over to the stage, showing him where to stand. No, not here. There, she said. Everyone at church said I was little Paul because I looked so much like daddy. They called him Deacon Paul at church on Sundays when he passed the collection plate. My daddy was an extra good Christian, but he was a banker at First Community Bank every other day. We both had red hair and freckles and white skin, but I didn't cry if someone said carrot top because it's not bad to be one. No, not at all. In fact, God made me something special. I'm the only one of my kind. God gave me a body and a bright, healthy mind. My Sunday school teacher sang while we got our carpet squares out. And guess who the teacher was? Mother, that's who. I was not tall like Daddy because I was five, but my sister Catherine was tall because she was seven. Mother's father, Daddy Black, was a big, strong, loud preacher at Bayside Church of Christ in Pasadena, Texas, where we lived. And that's who everyone was here to see. Daddy Black was bald and had a pointy nose, and everyone in Texas knew that the Church of Christ was the best. And everyone in the world knew that Texas was the best. We were the biggest state in this world. And Daddy said there was a wildness in Texas you just couldn't find anywhere else. Darling, there you are. Stephanie, stay close to me. This is not a playground. Mother knelt down and put her face right up next to mine and licked her finger and cleaned my cheeks. Don't dawdle off again, she said. I held Mother's hand very tight while we walked up to the front of the stage. There weren't very many people there, and I did not want to get lost in this big place. We went right by that pretty lady with the microphone and the man with the camera, like we didn't even see them. That will teach her to tell me run along, kiddo. Mother's fingers were bony like the chicken Hansel and Gretel gave to the witch to trick her. 
and her nails were long and red and her rings were big. She held my hand just a little too hard, but I didn't tell her because that would make her so sad. You have to think about other people's feelings. Daddy swooped me up and heads were everywhere under us. I could see this whole place like I was a bird up in the sky and the people were squirrels. I've got her, Lily, he said. Let's change angles, the lady with the microphone said. Let's try to face the stage. No, there's too much light. I want a good shot of both debaters. And the man with the camera minded her. I didn't know what abortion was. I did know that murder meant killing God's creatures on purpose. And I was proud tonight because Daddy Black was going to be on TV. He was a Christian soldier and fighting the devil, Madeline Murray O'Hare, a big old fat, ugly atheist. An atheist does not even believe in God, which makes them black inside their hearts. That's what Christian soldiers do. We fight devils, but we fight them sweetly. Daddy told Catherine and me before the debate that Daddy Black was fighting for little babies who got lost inside their mommies and floated away forever. And some mean murdering people didn't even try to find them. That's abortion, Daddy said, and it's against God. But why wouldn't people try to find them? And where do they float away to? I asked. I thought of tiny babies floating around in the stars with the big moon beside them. Does it happen by accident? Catherine asked. Sometimes, Daddy answered, but sometimes no. Sometimes it's on purpose. They just let the babies float away. Now, Stephanie, come here and let me tie your dress in a decent bow. I rubbed my eyes and started to cry. But Daddy, I don't want a decent bow. I just want a regular bow. Daddy laughed and put his sweet hand on my cheek and then tied my dress in a decent bow anyways. Paul, don't lie to them and tell them it happens by accident, Mother said. Catherine, sit up straight and hold your stomach in. And Catherine sat up straighter and sucked in, so I sucked in too. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.